0: Section 3 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by alexander and george sutherland chapter three the discoveries of bass and flinders one no community has ever been more completely isolated than the first inhabitants of sydney they were three thousand miles away from the nearest white men before them lay a great ocean visited only at rare intervals and for the greater part unexplored. Behind them was an unknown continent, a vast, untrodden waste, in which they formed but a speck. They were almost completely shut off from intercourse with the civilized world, and few of them could have any hope of returning to their native land. This made the colony all the more suitable as a place of punishment, for people shrank with horror at the idea of being banished what seemed like a tomb for living men and women. But, for all that, it was not desirable that Australia should remain always as unknown and unexplored as it then was. And, seven years after the first settlement was made, two men arrived who were determined not to suffer it so to remain. When Governor Hunter came in 1795, he brought with him On board his ship, the Reliance, a young surgeon, George Bass, and a midshipman called Matthew Flinders. They were young men of the most admirable character, modest and amiable, filled with a generous and manly affection for one another, and fired by a lofty enthusiasm which rejoiced in the wide field for discovery and fame that spread all around them. Within a month after their arrival, they purchased a small boat, about eight feet in length, which they christened the Tom Thumb. Its crew consisted of themselves and a boy to assist, truly a poor equipment with which to face a great and stormy ocean like the Pacific. They sailed out, and after tossing for some time like a toy on the huge waves, they succeeded in entering Botany Bay, which they thoroughly explored, making a chart of its shores and rivers on their return governor hunter was so highly pleased with their work that shortly after he gave them a holiday which they spent in making a longer expedition to the south it was said that a very large river fell into the sea south of botany bay and they went out to search for its mouth two boat excursion in this trip they met with some adventures which will serve to illustrate the dangers of such a voyage. On one occasion, when their boat had been upset on the shore, and their powder was wetted by the sea water, about fifty natives gathered round them, evidently with no friendly intention. Bass spread the powder out on the rocks to dry, and procured a supply of fresh water from a neighbouring pond, but they were in expectation every moment of being attacked and speared and there was no hope of defending themselves till the powder was ready. Flinders, knowing the fondness of the natives for the luxury of a shave, persuaded them to sit down one after another on a rock, and amused them by clipping their beards with a pair of scissors. As soon as the powder was dry, the explorers loaded their muskets and cautiously retreated to their boat, which they set right and pushed off without mishap. Once more on the Pacific, new dangers awaited them. They had been carried far to the south by the strong currents, and the wind was unfavourable. There was therefore no course open to them, but to row as far as they could during the day, and at night throw out the stone which served as an anchor, and lie as sheltered as they could, in order to snatch a little sleep. On one of these nights, while they lay thus asleep, The wind suddenly rose to a gale, and they were roughly wakened by the splashing of the waves over their boat. They pulled up their stone anchor and ran before the tempest, bass holding the sail and Flinders steering with an oar. As Flinders says, it required the utmost care to prevent broaching too. A single wrong movement or a moment's inattention would have sent us to the bottom. The task of the boy was to bail out the water, which, in spite of every care, the sea threw in upon us. The night was perfectly dark, and we knew of no place of shelter, and the only direction by which we could steer was the roar of the waves upon the neighbouring cliffs. After an hour spent in this manner, they found themselves running straight for the breakers. They pulled down their mast and got out the oars, though without much hope of escape. They rowed desperately, however, and had the satisfaction of rounding the long line of boiling surf. Three minutes after, they were in smooth water, under the lee of the rocks, and soon they discovered a well-sheltered cove where they anchored for the rest of the night. It was not till two days later that they found the place they were seeking. It turned out not to be a river at all, but only the little bay of Port Hacking, which they examined and minutely described. When they reached Sydney, they gave information which enabled accurate maps to be constructed of between 30 and 40 miles of coast. 3. Clark. On arriving at Port Jackson, they found that an accident had indirectly assisted in exploring that very coast on which they had landed. A vessel called the Sydney Cove, on its way to Port Jackson, had been wrecked on Furneaux Island, to the north of Van Diemen's Land. A large party, headed by Mr. Clark, the supercargo, had started in boats, intending to sail along the coasts and obtain help from Sydney. They were thrown ashore by a storm at Cape Howe, and had to begin a dreary walk of 300 miles through dense and unknown country. Their small store of provisions was soon used, and they could find no food and little fresh water on their path. Many dropped down, exhausted by hunger and fatigue, and had to be abandoned to their fate. Of those who contrived to approach within thirty miles of Sydney, the greater part were murdered by the same tribe of blacks from whom Bass and Flinders had apprehended danger. Clark and one or two others reached Port Jackson, their clothes in tatters, their bodies wasted almost to the bones, and in such a state that, when a boat was brought to carry them over the bay to Sydney, they had to be lifted on board like infants. Mr. Clarke, on his recovery, was able to give a very useful account of a great tract of land not previously explored. The crew of the Sydney Cove were meanwhile living on one of the furneaux groups, and several small ships were sent down from Sydney to rescue the crew and cargo. These also served to make the coast better known. Flinders was very anxious to go in one of them in order to make a chart of the places he might pass. But his ship, the Reliance, sailed for Norfolk Island, and he had to be a long time absent for discovery of Bass Straits. His friend Bass was more fortunate for Governor Hunter gave him an open whaleboat, together with provisions for six weeks, and six men to manage the boat. With these, he discovered the harbour and river of Shoalhaven, entered and mapped out Jarvis Bay, discovered Twofold Bay, then rounded Cape Howe, and discovered the country, now called Victoria. After sailing along the 90-mile beach, he saw high land to the southwest, and, standing out towards it, discovered the bold headland which was afterwards named Wilson's Promontory. Bad weather drove him to seek for shelter, and this led to the discovery of Western Port, where he remained thirteen days. But as his provisions were running short, he was forced, with a heavy heart, to turn homeward he had again to seek shelter however from strong headwinds and in doing so discovered what is called corner inlet in all he prolonged his voyage to eleven weeks before he again reached sydney during that time he had explored six hundred miles of coast and had discovered four important bays as well as what is perhaps the most important cape in australia his greatest service however was the proof that van diemen's land is not joined to australia but is divided from it by the wide strait to which bass's name is now so justly given all this effected in an open whaleboat on a great ocean may well fill us with admiration for the courage and skill of the young surgeon five flinders when flinders returned from norfolk island he obtained leave to join the next vessel that should start for the wreck of the Sydney Cove. Having arrived at Furneaux Island during the time that the wreckage and remaining cargo were being gathered, he obtained the loan of a small boat for five days and in it made careful surveys of the islands and straits to the north of Van Diemen's land. It was in this trip that he made the first discovery of that peculiar Australian animal, the wombat, 6. Circumnavigation of Van Diemen's Land Next year, 1798, Governor Hunter gave to the two ardent young men a small sloop, the Norfolk, in which to prosecute their discoveries. They received three months' leave of absence, in which time they proposed to sail round Van Diemen's Land. This they did, and discovered during their voyage the river Tamar and its estuary, Port Dalrymple. It was not in discovery alone that they were successful. Flinders made the most beautiful and exact charts of all the coasts. He sometimes spent whole days in careful and laborious observations and measurements in order to have the latitude and longitude of a single place correctly marked. 7. Fate of Bass. On their return to Sydney, bass met some friends who persuaded him to join them in making their fortune by carrying contraband goods into south america in spite of the spaniards what became of bass is not known but it is supposed that he was captured by the spaniards and sent to the silver mines where he was completely lost from sight he who entered those dreary mines was lost for ever to human knowledge and Bass may have perished there after years of wearisome and unknown labour. After all his hardships and adventures, his enthusiasm and his self-devotion, he passed away from men's eyes, and no one was curious to know whither he had gone. But Australians of these days have learnt to honour the memory of the man who first, in the company of his friend, laid the foundation Of so much of their geography. 8. The Publication of Flinders Charts Flinders remained in His Majesty's service and in the following year was raised to the rank of Lieutenant. With his little ship, the Norfolk, he examined the coasts of New South Wales from Sydney northward as far as Harvey Bay. Next year, 1800, he went to London, where his charts were published, containing the first exact accounts of the geography of Australia. They were greatly praised, and the English government resolved to send out an expedition to survey all the coasts of Australia in like manner. Flinders was placed at the head of it. A vessel was given to him, which he called the Investigator. A passport was obtained for him from the French government, so that, Though England and France were then at war, he might not be obstructed by French warships. Sailing to the south coast of Australia, he discovered Kangaroo Island and Spencer's Gulf, and then entered Port Phillip, under the impression that he was the discoverer of that inlet, but afterwards learnt that Lieutenant Murray, in his ship the Lady Nelson, had discovered it ten weeks before. 9. Baudin. as flinders sailed down towards bass strait he met with a french expedition under Monsieur baudin who had been sent out by napoleon to make discoveries in australia he had loitered so long on the coast of tasmania that flinders had been able to complete the examination of the southern coast before he even approached it yet baudin sailed into the very bays which had already been mapped out gave them French names, and took to himself the honour of their discovery. Some months later, the two expeditions met one another again in Port Jackson. Flinders showed his charts, and the French officers allowed that he had carried off the honours of nearly all the discoveries on the south coast. But, in spite of that, a report was published in France, in which Flinders' claims were quite ignored, and Beaudin represented as the hero of Australian discovery. The colonists at Port Jackson, however, treated the French sailors with much kindness. Many of them were suffering from scurvy, and these were carried to the Sydney hospital and carefully tended. And though the colonists had themselves eaten only salt meat for months before in order to preserve their cattle, yet they killed these very cattle to provide fresh meat for the sick sailors. Baudin and his officers were feasted, and everything was done both by Flinders and the people of Sydney to make their stay agreeable. 10. Imprisonment of Flinders Flinders continued his voyage northwards, rounded Cape York, and examined the northern coasts, making an excellent chart of Torres Strait. But his vessel, becoming too rotten to be longer used, he was forced to return to Sydney. Desiring to carry his charts and journals to England, he took his passage in an old store ship, but she had not sailed far before she struck on a coral reef. The crew with difficulty reached a small sandbank from which they were not released till two months after. Flinders saved his papers and brought them back to Sydney. A small schooner, the Cumberland, was given him in which to sail for england but she was too leaky and too small a vessel to carry food for so long a voyage so that he was forced to put into the mauritius which then belonged to france he fancied that his passport from napoleon would be his protection but the governor de Caen, a low and ignorant fellow seized him took his papers from him and cast him into prison baudin soon after called at the mauritius and would probably have procured the release of his brother mariner had he not died immediately after his arrival the charts of flinders however were all sent to france where they were published with altered names as if they were the work of frenchmen meanwhile flinders was spending the weary months in close confinement at the mauritius Eleven, death of flinders nearly six years passed away before the approach of an english fleet compelled the french to release him and when he went to england he found that people knew all about those very places of which he thought he was bringing the first tidings he commenced however to write his great book and worked with the utmost pains to make all his maps scrupulously accurate after about four years of incessant labour The three volumes were ready for the press, but he was doomed never to see them. So many years of toil, so many nights passed in open boats or on the wet sands, so many shipwrecks and weeks of semi-starvation, together with his long and unjust imprisonment, had utterly destroyed his constitution, and on the very day when his book was being published, the wife and daughter of Flinders, were tending his last painful hours. He was, perhaps, our greatest maritime discoverer, a man who worked because his heart was in his work, who sought no reward and obtained none, who lived laboriously and did honourable service to mankind, yet died, like his friend Bass, almost unknown to those of his own day. But leaving a name which the world is every year more and more disposed to honour. End of chapter 3